It'd be helpful if you had uh, 1 John chapter 3 open in front of you. Those will be those verses that we read will be the verses we're considering this evening. Um, it's not a, a novel question, uh, but one that we ought to often ask ourselves and remind ourselves of the answer. Uh, when we're presenting the gospel, we often present it as the, the free gift of forgiveness, the free gift of salvation. And then closely followed after this free gift that we offer to people, uh, we make sure that they understand the small print in that this free gift also requires people to become part of a church, to change their lifestyle and to become obedient to Jesus Christ in every area. If it really is a free gift of salvation, how does this uh, requirement of turning away from sin fit into that free gift? And how does the... Um, uh, Sorry, once we've got some key patterns of life in place, once we've been a Christian for a few years, perhaps a few decades, once we've got used to uh, the, the, the cycle of the church week and, and turning up on a Sunday and uh, getting to the midweek and spending our time with other Christians, is there a point at which in the Christian life things all become suddenly a lot easier? We, we've sort of made it to an equilibrium and we can then uh, float on through life content that our patterns and habits that we've built up will keep us from sin. The question that we're trying to deal with is what the New Testament teaches us about sin in our lives. Why is it a problem? Why do we have to get rid of it? And how do we fight it? The answer starts and ends with the person of Jesus. Throughout 1 John, John is keen to make the point that the Christian faith is not simply a ticket to heaven. It's not just something that you believe so that when you die, something good will happen to you. The language that John uses is much more of a relationship with God. You see this throughout. If, you, if you've got a Bible, you might, I mean, on my page, it's all on the, the double page facing me. Chapter 1, verse 3, for example, John explains how he's sharing this message so that the people he's sharing it with can share fellowship with God the Father and with God the Son, and fellowship with other believers. Fellowship is the key word that John first introduces to describe this Christian faith. Chapter 2, verse 3, he says that coming to know God is the goal and measure of true faith. Not just knowing about God, faith in God isn't just knowing about him, but it's actually knowing him as a person. Chapter 2, verse 24 uh, he, he says that the key to faith is remaining in the Son and the Father. If it does, you will remain in the Son and in the Father. Our lives are united to their life. Uh, he's described the, the Christian life as one of walking in God's light, uh, of loving with God's love, of knowing God's truth and the truth of God. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, the the definitive, dis, uh, the 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 to become a child of God is the defining relationship. Uh, that, is, that is what characterizes the life of a Christian. We become children of the Father. Now, for those who've been in the church many years, this might be a good time to ask yourself, what is my faith? Is it simply something that I understand? Do I measure my maturity based on what I know and how well I can explain certain truths? Is there any real knowing God in my faith? Can I really say that I know him? Do I have a relationship with the God of light? 
having spoken earlier of God's light, his truth, his love, John now in his letter moves on to talk about what this relationship looks like in relation to God's righteousness. He introduces in chapter 2, verse 29, the idea that God is righteous. And before we look at how John unpacks that, it'd be worth just pausing a moment to think, what, what does John mean by this word righteous? To put it simply, to be righteous is to be morally good. And so when John's saying that God is righteous, he means that God is morally good. It's similar to what we might mean when we say things like God is good all the time. That's the same idea of saying that God is righteous. God's actions, all of God's actions, are always, only and entirely morally good in every part of them. Now, that's a a statement that's easy to make and easy to understand on the face of it, but it's quite hard to grasp, to really realise the fullness of it. You see, our problem is we're so used to defining goodness based on our own experience. Our, in our mind's eye, goodness is whatever values us and makes us happy and, and exalts us. And so if people are kind to us, then that is goodness. And it can be easy to slip into the, 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 the danger of, of thinking of God's goodness as being equivalent to something like those who are kindest to us in our life. Maybe uh, we've got a memory through rose-tinted spectacles of, of a dearly loved family member, an old grandparent or something. And our idea of the good God is basically equivalent to our memory of this good family member that we once had. And as we are able to uh, conform our own lives to that pattern of goodness that we might be able to remember, we might even uh, slip into uh, proclaiming ourselves as righteous, morally good. But a biblical view of God's goodness shows us that these very simplified caricatures are woefully inadequate. We were reading this morning, weren't we, from Isaiah chapter 6. And in in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah gets a vision of the God who is holy, holy, holy. God's holiness is closely related to his righteousness. And what was Isaiah's response when he saw this holy, righteous God? Did he say, that is really lovely? Did he say, that is more lovely than I've ever experienced anything before? Did he say, oh, I realize I'm not quite as good as I thought I was. Here's one who is better than me. He didn't say any of those things. God's holiness is so far above our own standard of righteousness that we often try to apply to ourselves and to each other. When Isaiah saw God's holiness and God's righteousness, all he could say is, woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. This is a prophet who gave his life to, to speaking God's truth. And yet still he says, my lips are just dirty. The best I have to offer is nothing. God's righteousness is so far above our own. And in John chapter 2, verse 29, John says, If you know that he is righteous, if you know something of the righteousness of the God who sits on the throne, then you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Because how could it be any different? If 
believers are in relationship with that God who sits on the throne. If they have come to know him, if they see something of his righteousness, if they have his life coursing through their veins, how could a believer be anything other than righteous? Sinfulness has no place in the presence of God. He is a a holy, consuming fire that burns up impurity and rids us of sin. To have put yourself, to have put your hope in him, John says in verse three, is to submit yourself to the purification that God requires. You see, to be a Christian is not just to know the right things. It's not just to become a member of a church. To be a Christian is to be welcomed into that throne room in which Isaiah stood. To be a Christian is to have his righteous life as the source of your own life. It's to become, as Peter would describe it, participators in the divine nature. You share something of his righteousness. And so because of his righteousness and because of our fellowship with him, sin, therefore, becomes absolutely incompatible with the life of a true believer. Sin is incompatible in your life if you are really in fellowship with God. Now, that truth is seen no more clearly than in Jesus. Jesus is our definition of what God's righteousness looks like when it is realized in the life of a human. And John says, verse five, you know that he appeared so he might take away sin and in him is no sin. In that man, Jesus, there was the full righteousness of God. There was not even a scrap or a suggestion of sin. And therefore, verse 6, no one who lives in Jesus keeps on sinning. The same pattern ought to be true for your life as it was for Jesus. But come on, you might say. Jesus, yes, he was a man, and, and therefore he knew the temptations of what it is to be a man. He knew the difficulty it is to face uh, the temptation of sin. He knew how hard it is to live in this world and how pervasive sin is throughout all of the creation. Surely he knows that God's righteousness is unattainable and he wouldn't hold us to the standard of God's righteousness, would he? There was a young man who once came to Jesus and asked him what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus reeled off the commandments and in perfectly good faith, the man replied, yes, I've, I've kept all these since I was a boy. He was, as far as our standard is concerned, Morally good. But Jesus sent him away sad. Go and give up, sell all that you have and give the money to the poor. If you're following me, there is no room for any other God. There is no room for any other idol. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the, uh, uh, the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. Is it possible then to reach a kind of Christian equilibrium in your life. To have, be, to have been a Christian for so long that just the, the patterns that are ingrained into your week uh, so prevent you from sinning that there's no need to continue the fight against sin. It doesn't feel like a battle anymore. It just feels like keeping the status quo. Perhaps you feel like you've reached that point. Perhaps you're hoping that one day you might reach that point. John's letter is showing us 
that for as long as there is a gap between God's righteousness and our conduct, then you cannot rest. You cannot be content because you are in fellowship with the righteous one and no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. As long as any anger remains, as long as any anxiety remains, as long as any lack of self-control in your uh, responses to people, as long as there's any impatience or irritability, as long as you uh, have a, an attitude of judgmentalism in any way towards others, as long as envy rears its head in your thoughts, as long as you are discontent, as long as you are proud, as long as you neglect to give thanks for all that you have received, as long as there is a selfish attitude to your actions, as long as you get frustrated with others around you, this gap between your righteousness and the righteousness of God remains. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Now, I know that is a, a heavy and dispiriting message. Because who amongst us can say that they don't see sin in their own life? And the danger of leaving the message at that point that, I, that I've got it to is that it drives us then to self-righteousness. We leave here uh, full of anger at the, at the sin that still remains in our life and we resolve to do something about it. And we pile on law after law, after rule after rule, after regulation after regulation in order to try and wipe out that sin. But the strength to defeat sin does not come from ourselves and our own efforts. It comes from Jesus. You see, Jesus is not just our example of righteousness. He is also the source of righteousness. Verse five again. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sin. He came to take away our sins, not just to take away our punishment for sin, but to take away our sins themselves. Law is ineffective. It's not ineffective at communicating a standard. We can read God's law and see the standard that he requires. It's effective in that sense. But it's ineffective in that it can't get us to that standard. It can never deal with the problem of sin. You will not achieve that righteous standard of God by simply adding rule upon rule upon rule to your life. That's what the Pharisees were trying to do, who would tithe off even their herbs in their kitchen in order to try and meet God's righteousness. The reason that law cannot work is because it can only ever affect our exterior. It can only ever control what we do and what we say, and where we go, and what we give, and so on and so forth. But Jesus says, your unrighteousness doesn't stem from what you do. Your unrighteousness stems from the heart. It's what comes from within that makes you unrighteous, not the results of what you do with your hands, and your money, and your time. Unless the heart is changed, we cannot take a single step towards the righteousness of God. But Jesus came to take away our sin. Jesus came to clean us up from the inside. Jesus came to write his laws, not on tables of stone or not on big pieces of paper that we can pin on our dining room walls. He came to write his law on our hearts, to start the work from the inside outwards. And if you follow John's line of arguing, that, that righteousness 
is achieved when the life of Jesus is realized in our lives. Verse 6, if you work backwards, you'll see that to, to see Jesus, to see something of the righteousness that he exhibited in his life, to see him is to know him. To know him is not just to know about him, but to be in relationship with him. To know him like family members know one another. To love one another. To emulate one another. If you know him, you live in him. You are united to him. And if we live in him, he lives in us. Verse 27 of chapter 2 describes that, that living in us as an anointing by the Spirit. He lives in us by giving us his Spirit. And the Spirit teaches us what is right. Righteousness is not achieved by following some self-help guide or pinning up the Ten Commandments on your dining room wall, as helpful as that might be. Righteousness is achieved by allowing ourselves to be led by the Spirit of God. Now, what does that mean in practice? Because I'm sure you've all heard many people speak about being led by the Spirit when really what they mean is they had a good idea while they were in the shower one morning. Uh, Or talking about being led by the Spirit and what they mean is uh, they had a bit of a funny feeling. A fuzzy feeling in their stomach while they were in a worship service one time. What is it to be led by the Spirit? How do we know that we are being led by the Spirit? I would say to follow the Spirit is to follow the teaching of God's Word. And that's about as simple as I would put it. Why is it that I can equate those two so closely? Well, think about this. In terms of what John's teaching us here, what is the Spirit trying to get us to do? What is the role of the Spirit's anointing? The Spirit is given in order that we might become more like Jesus, that we might follow the pattern of his righteousness. And how do we know what Jesus is like? How do we know what his righteousness looks like? We only know as it is given to us in his word. John backs that up as when he starts his letter, he says, these are the things which were from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have touched at. Uh, touched and looked at. John's saying, I had the privilege of touching, talking to, uh, being with Jesus. But now this message I write to you. I proclaim it to you and I've written it down to preserve it. The New Testament is the preservation of the life of Jesus for the church to use. And so when the Spirit is conforming us to the life of Jesus, he's not conforming us to some vague idea that we have in our minds about what Jesus might have been like. He's not conforming us to the ideas of some documentary on the TV about what Jesus must have been like. The Spirit is conforming us to the pattern of Jesus' life as we see him revealed in the New Testament. It's no surprise that John often calls Jesus the Word of God. If you want to reach maturity in the Christian life. You don't need to go looking for some new ministry opportunity uh, or some uh, more training at at a Bible college. Uh, You don't need to go looking for a helpful mentor. Uh, You don't need to necessarily go looking for a new church or, or some powerful worship experience. If you want to mature as a Christian, if you want to become more like Jesus, the key is to find ways of allowing God's word to influence your life more closely.
Allow the Spirit to make you more like Jesus as you become more closely conformed to the pattern of the New Testament. And so I wouldn't even say if you want to become a, if you want to become a more mature Christian, you, you must read the Bible more. Because you, you see that what the problem is there is you say, if I want to become a more mature Christian, I must do X thing. I must perform X duty. Read the Bible more often. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying become a more mature Christian by being conformed to the pattern of Jesus' life. Be led, influenced, changed by the Spirit. Now, how are you going to do that without spending more time in God's word? I don't know. But the answer is not just I will read the Bible more and that will do it. The answer is I will be more heavily influenced by God's word. Jesus came to take away our sins. And he achieves that by giving us his spirit, changing our hearts and teaching us as he's revealed to us through his word. Now, as well as the encouragement, uh, John also gives us a warning to follow. Verse seven, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. Do not follow those who will lead you astray. And the question is, lead you astray from what? And I'm sure you recognize lead you astray from following Jesus. Let's jump straight to the application here. Who do you listen to? Who do you allow to influence you? Who do you read? Uh, What media outlets do you most often look at or listen to or watch on TV? Uh, What film series do you often uh, watch? What news station do you listen to? What television programs do you like to sit down uh, and spend an hour with? What preachers do you download? Who is your mentor? Who is your hero? Who is it that most influences your life? Now, of course, the ideal answer would be Jesus Christ through his word. But we we know that even if that is the ideal answer, and even if that's the strongest influence in our life, there are going to be other influences. Because we live in the world. We can't escape those around who we live. And so as you think about those other influences in your life, the people that you often submit your time to in order to read and think about their thoughts and opinions, ask yourself this question. What is their motive? What is their goal or purpose? What are they trying to promote? Ask yourself, what is their view of righteousness? How would they define what is morally right or wrong? What standard of goodness do they want you to perform to? There are many in the world who do what is right. They're born of God, John says. But there are many, many more who do what is sinful. And in setting sin as their aim, they show that they are influenced by the devil. There's basically two categories of people. People who are born of God and people who are influenced by the devil. People who are of the devil, John says. Now that is real stark language, isn't it? It's stark because because we most often reserve the language of being satanic to those things which are truly the most hideous evil in the world. And it grates to think of people who we wouldn't necessarily class as satanic, but John's asking us to classify them as being influenced by the devil. But John's logic still holds. 
The reason John gives that those, these people are of the devil is because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. Where did sin come from? Of the devil. And so when John talks about them being of the devil, it's not necessarily meaning that they are directly controlled by Satan to, to perform any particular task or influence that they're trying to set out. But that sin on the whole stems from and comes from the devil. So when you submit yourselves to be influenced by those who are of the devil, you need to realize, John says, that you're submitting yourself to those who are in direct opposition to the one who came to save you, to the one who you claim to have fellowship with. Be aware of those who try and try and influence you. Look at what they promote and, and how they behave and don't let them lead you astray. It's important because you're supposed to be following the righteous one. What does his righteousness look like? He appeared to destroy the work of the devil. So be careful about whose influence you put yourself back under, that you're not working against the work of Jesus in your life. And then John ends this section with some of the most challenging verses in the passage and perhaps the whole letter. Some might even say the most challenging of the whole New Testament. Verse 9 and 10. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remain in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God nor is anyone who does not love his brother. How can these verses, so absolute, so uncompromising, how can these verses help us, encourage us in our fight against sin? How can they help John achieve his purpose, which was to, um, so that we might know we have eternal life? That's the reason he's writing the letter. He's writing to Christians, so you know you have life. And then he says... It looks like, he says, if you sin, you can't be born of God. What on earth does he mean? Uh, two things I'd want to point out. First, these verses are given in the context of helping us to discern who we ought to follow and who we ought to submit to uh, in this life. Who we ought to be influenced by. Uh, John's not purposely, uh, John's not specifically writing as a condition of salvation. The primary purpose it's for people to be able to discern the sort of person we ought to be following. And remember, back from chapter 1 and, and the early parts of chapter 2, there were some who were bothering the church who um, claimed to know God, yet walked in sin. Who claimed to have no sin. Who claimed they had never sinned. Who claimed to love and yet hated their brother. And then in these verses, John is saying, look, you'll know whether these people really are of God. Not by how impressive their language is, not by how persuasive they are in speaking, not by how many people follow after them. You'll know by what they do. If these people continue in sin, they cannot be the teachers of God that they promise to be. So that's the first thing. Look at the reason John's writing these verses. But then that still might not give you much encouragement because you wonder, uh, do these verses then apply to me who is in the church and who still has sin in their life? And secondly, I would say that these verses cannot mean, they cannot mean that once a person is saved, he will never sin again. They simply cannot mean 
that once a person is born of God, he will not sin. They can't mean that because of what John has said elsewhere in the letter. It will be totally contradictory to uh, chapter one, verse uh, chapter two, verse one, for example. My children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the father in our defense. It's totally contradictory to chapter one, verse eight. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. So what does it mean then for John to say uh, that? No one who is born of God will continue to sin. What does it mean that we cannot go on sinning? I think it simply means that sin can no longer be the settled pattern of our life. You cannot be satisfied with sin remaining. If God's seed remains in you, it will not allow you to be apathetic towards sin. And if you have really seen something of God, if you have known something of his righteousness, his goodness, and just how greater his goodness is compared to the goodness that we often satisfy ourselves with, if you've seen something of his righteousness, you will not be content to continue in the state of sin that you are in. It's a bit like asking a vegetarian to eat a piece of bacon. I can't do it, they would say. Not because... The bacon literally won't fit into their mouth or not because their teeth have become so weak that they can't chew the bacon. To say they cannot cannot eat the bacon doesn't mean that they physically cannot do it. It means it would just be so contrary to their whole pattern of life, their whole philosophy. And John's saying, if you've known God, you cannot go on sinning. You cannot continue. Not if you've really seen something of his righteousness. It's not that you never will, but that you won't ever be satisfied. So if this message and this passage in particular has prompted to see you to see sin more clearly in your own life, well, don't despair. Don't feel that that must be the, the truth that you have never been saved. Instead, the right response is, as John says, go to Jesus. Go to the one who speaks in our defense. Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one. And even be encouraged, if you're a believer, be encouraged that the seed of God which remains in you prompts you to be dissatisfied with the sin that remains. This is one of the ways that you can know that you have eternal life when God leads you to hate sin in such a fashion.